This morning we're going to return to Ephesians chapter 4 and look at verses 26 and 27. We've reached the point in this epistle where the application of truth is being made. And this parallels nicely what we've been studying on Wednesday evenings before our prayer meeting. In just a few minutes before the prayer meeting on Wednesday evenings, we've been looking at chapters out of Paul Washer's book, The Preeminent Christ. Just last Wednesday evening, we looked at the chapter that was entitled, The Preeminent Means of Sanctification. And there we were reminded that the gospel of Jesus Christ is not only a message which saves sinners, certainly it does that, thank God it does that, but it is also that which sanctifies believers. The point that is made is that the gospel is for everyone. It saves the unbeliever, it is the power of God unto salvation, but it also sanctifies the believer in Christ. And this is the way that Paul Washer puts these things together. He says, a first look of faith saves us, but an ongoing look at the gospel transforms us and conforms us in increasing measure to the image of Jesus Christ. So that's really where we are at this point in our study of the book of Ephesians. We've been taught up to this point over and over again things concerning Jesus Christ and our standing in him to summarize what he has done for us in saving us. Now there are expectations that are being placed upon us as the redeemed of God, and those are reflected in verses 25 through verse 32, and really they extend all the way through the end of this book of Ephesians. So if you'll go back with me there, let's read verses 25 down through verse 32, the end of chapter 4. We read there, Therefore put away lying. Let each one of you speak truth with his neighbor, for we are members of one another. Be angry and do not sin. Do not let the sun go down on your wrath, nor give place to the devil. Let him who stole steal no longer, but rather let him labor, working with his hands what is good, that he may have something to give him who has need. Let no corrupt word proceed out of your mouth, but that which is, good, which is good for necessary edification, that it may impart grace to the hearers. And do not grieve the Holy Spirit of God by whom you were sealed for the day of redemption. Let all bitterness, wrath, anger, clamor, and evil speaking be put away from you with all malice and be kind to one another tender-hearted, forgiving one another, even as God in Christ forgave you. Let's pray. Father, we pray that you would help us understand these verses rightly, that your spirit would be our teacher, that we might be edified, and that Christ might be honored and glorified in it. It's in his name we pray. Amen. So the verses that we're going to look at this morning, particularly verses 26, in 27, be angry and do not sin. Do not let the sun go down on your wrath, nor give place to the devil. These verses are embedded 
in this paragraph, which contains at least six statements, commands, that require or expect a believer's obedience. The proper term to designate what is expected of us here would be the term evangelical obedience. It's important that we make this distinction and settle it in our minds and hearts. As believers, we are to be obedient to the commands of Scripture, not in order that we might affect reconciliation with God or even maintain it. All of that, the affecting of reconciliation and the maintenance of it, has been done and is being done by Christ, His sacrifice, and His ongoing priestly, high priestly intercession for us. So why do we obey? Why not just continue in sin so that grace may abound? That's a logical question. Paul anticipated it in Romans chapter 6. The reason that we obey is because or since we have been given a standing with Christ, or a standing with God through Christ, we are obeying and our obedience flows out of that relationship and the newness of our heart. It flows out of conversion. It flows out of the Spirit of God indwelling us and creating in us the fruit of the Spirit. And it also flows out of this new standing that we have been given to God, with God. I want you to go back, since it's been a couple of weeks, last week we were... In preparation for the Lord's Supper, we were in Isaiah 53, so I want you to go back with me and look how the verses that just precede verse 25, what they tell us concerning who we are in Christ. If you go back and look at verse 20, now remember the setting, the context, where we're going these expectations of obedience, this is the foundation that's being set. Without this foundation, the commands that end chapter 4 have nowhere to rest. But with this conclusion and with this foundation of what has been done for us in Christ, these commands have great foundation. They come with all authority. They come with expectation of our obedience. We read there in verse 20, you have not so learned Christ, but you have not so learned Christ. If indeed you have heard him and have been taught by him, as the truth is in Jesus. Now, you might remember from several weeks ago now when we looked at this, I presented this and I'm going to, to stay with this interpretation of these verses that these are things that have been done. These are indicative statements of gospel truth. This is what has happened at our conversion, in regeneration, in salvation, that you put off concerning your former conduct, the old man which grows corrupt according to deceitful lust. The ordinance of baptism that Christ has given us as His church greatly and graphically pictures this in what has happened to us in conversion, that the old man has been put off. It is buried in the grave. It is buried along with Christ. And be renewed in the spirit of your mind and that you put on the new man. 
which was created according to God in true righteousness and holiness. What is the imagery of baptism? The second picture? It's resurrection. It's being raised to walk in newness of life. And this life that has been saved, reconciled to God, notice the end of verse 24. We have been created according to God in true righteousness and holiness. And if the question were to be posed here, the question, what does this new man look like? Perhaps a more pertinent question, what does this new man act like? What type of things will he not do unto the glory of God? And what kind of things will he do unto the glory of God? These are the things that Paul begins to answer, and it runs all the way through the end of the sixth chapter. It takes him the rest of this epistle to unpack what this new man that has been created according to, to God in true righteousness and holiness, what is expected of him. It is a gloriously true statement that our salvation has been affected by Christ and his obedience to the law in giving himself actively to keeping the law and then passively to the demand of the law of God's justice. And when we are in Christ by faith, we come into union with him and we thereby have been perfectly obedient to the law with him as our head, having his righteousness applied, and we have suffered in him the demands of the law in crucifixion and death. We've been raised to walk in Christ. But now there is real expectation. The glory of God in you is at stake. The glory of God in Christians, in His body, which, interestingly, the pre predominant metaphor here in this section of the epistle to the Ephesians is that believers are to be light in the world. Someone who has been created according to God in true righteousness, in holiness, the expectation of Scripture is, is that you and I will go and live by much help and grace of the Spirit accordingly as someone who is now bearing the mark and the image of a holy and righteous God. That is where these six commands, expectations, that close out the fourth chapter come into play. So again, we're looking at verse 26 and 27. And you'll note that generally all of these in this paragraph follow this pattern. There is a negative. Let's just look at verse 25 that we looked at two weeks ago. The negative there being put away lying. The positive counterpart. Let each one of you speak truth with his neighbor. And then the motive is given. The motive here is for we are members of one another. Verse 26 and 7 follow generally the same pattern. The positive, be angry. And it may take me the rest of this sermon to convince you that that's a positive. The negative, do not sin. Do not let the sun go down on your wrath. The motive, giving place to the devil. If you do give place to the devil, then nothing good is going to come. So I've already dug myself a hole in having to convince you that being angry is a positive command. Let me see if I can get myself out. 
I want to begin with some general guidelines for interpreting not only this verse, but this paragraph, but particularly this verse. There are two kinds of anger. There is what we refer to as being modeled most clearly for us as righteous indignation in the person of Christ. The preeminent example of that just might be Christ fashioning a whip of cords and driving the money changers out of the temple. And then there is unrighteous anger. Interestingly, we don't have to go far, just down to verse 31, where we are told, let all bitterness, wrath, anger, clamor, and evil speaking be put away from you with all malice. So, is something out of order? Is there a, a problem in this paragraph? We have a quotation of Psalm 4, 4, which begins verse 26, be angry and do not sin. The word angry, just note, in case I forget to tell you later, the word for angry in verse 26 and the word wrath that ends verse 26 are different things altogether. Thankfully, they're depicted that way in several English versions that put them as different words. The word angry in verse 26 as being a quotation out of Psalm 4, 4 literally means to tremble, to be agitated. The word wrath at the end of verse 26 is anger unmitigated, anger that has gotten out of control if it's to be born in a human sense, but it's also the word that is very often used for the righteous and judicial anger or wrath of God. Again, you don't have to get far until you see that displayed. Just go down to verse 6 of chapter 5. Let no one deceive you with empty words, for because of these things the wrath of God comes upon the sons of disobedience. And so trying to understand these verses, we're going to see that they follow the same pattern. The positive, be angry, the negative, do not sin in your anger. And then the motive, generally, not giving place to the devil. I like what R.C.H. Linsky says about these two imperative verbs. And if you're familiar with that name, yes, I know he is not necessarily a Reformed theologian. He's of a different persuasion. But as far as command of the original languages of the scripture, he is, he has few who are as able as he. And so he says of this, the first command, be angry, is concessive in nature. The second tells us of imminent danger. Do not sin. Why? Because if you sin in your anger, then you are giving place to the devil. Now, let me give you what I'm going to call two shocking statements. And I'm going to admit at the beginning of this that I have pulled these statements right out of their original context and I'm using them for my own advantage. But what I'm going to do later is I'm going to take these two statements and I'm going to put them back in their original context so that you can see the larger way that they're used. 
John Stott is a name that some of you are familiar with. He says this, and again, this is pulled out, there is a great need for Christian anger. Ian Hamilton, another name that you may not be so familiar with, but is very sound and has been extremely helpful to me in this study of Ephesians. He is one of the, I'm not sure the proper term, the founders or board members or whomever of the Banner of Truth. He writes of the gospel virtue of anger. So a great need for Christian anger and the gospel virtue of anger. On the other hand, these thoughts. Anger is an acid that destroys its container. True. Anger, it is anger of this type that must be put away in verse 31 and does not befit the new creation of God that has been created according to God in true righteousness and holiness. So hopefully as we move forward, I've gotten your attention to this first positive command of being angry. But note, it is immediately qualified. And if you're asking the question, how can I be angry and not sin? Well, Lord willing, we'll have some kind of answer for that question. And I'm going to turn to another name that you'll be familiar with for help here, and that's John Gill. John Gill wrote this, and this is what convinced me, because quite honestly, I was probably having the same trouble as some of you are having with these terms, Christian anger and the gospel virtue of anger. He says, John Gill, there is anger which is not sinful. For anger is found in God himself. Obviously, it's righteous, holy, and just altogether. Anger is found in Jesus Christ, in the holy angels, and in God's people themselves. Now, the full context of those few things that I, those few words that I pulled out of their context, first with Ian Hamilton, he is the one that talks about the gospel virtue of anger. Here's his full statement. The danger of anger developing into sin must not distract us from the gospel virtue of anger that is righteous. Now here's where I think he begins to convince. Likeness to God, and remember verse 24 has told us that we have been created according to God in true righteousness and holiness. So he says, likeness to God will mean that we share his anger at what sin has done in his good creation. The absence of godly, righteous anger can only accentuate our unlikeness to him. So there's Ian Hamilton in his full statement. Now John Stott, who wrote of Christian anger, here's his full statement. This command to be angry both permits and at the same time restricts rather than absolutely commands anger. When we fail 
to express or feel Christian anger, we deny God, damage ourselves, encourage the spread of evil. There is a great need for Christian anger. What other reaction can sin and wickedness be expected to provoke in those who love God? Now, John MacArthur says something very similar. And he's writing here more about what is it that we observe in this fallen world that should incite Christian righteous indignation but not get to the point of sinning. That's the, that's the temper. That's the balance. He says, whatever shows itself to be in abhorrence to justice, immorality, and ungodliness of every sort, this is what incites this type of anger in a Christian. And again, this is not the anger of rage. This is not the anger of extreme. This is not the anger of physical action. This is not anger directed towards someone. These are not words that we would rightly allow come out of our mouth in anger to deride someone or to tear someone down or to curse someone. This is the righteous indignation in the heart and the soul of a Christian when he or she sees the express commands of God being disobeyed, flaunted, his name taken in vain, and any other type of thing. Perhaps you've felt and sensed this type of indignation in you. I want to go and give some biblical examples to this because I suppose that there are some who might be yet unconvinced. And I'm going to do this by, by going back to John Gill. And then I'm going to add to some things that he says, and I'll let you know when I do that so not to condemn him. John Gill says, A man may be said to be angry and not sin when, and here are his qualifications. You may be angry and not sin when the anger arises from a true zeal for God. When it is kindled not against the person, but against sin. When you are displeased with your own sins. With, when you are incensed to anger with vice and immorality and evil of every kind. When you witness and observe idolatry and idolatrous worship, we should be incited to anger at false doctrine and the havoc that it wreaks upon the people of God and the condemnation that it holds people under. We may rightly be said to be angry when it carries on to answer good ends. In other words, when it is for the good of those with whom the anger has been produced. When it ends in the glory of God. When it promotes the interest of Christ. Now, this is where I break with John Gill and I'm going back. This is original to me only and I'll bear the, the consequence of it. I want to see if we can find biblical example in the Scriptures for any of these things that he has said. Any justification for righteous indignation on the part of a believer. He said, when a man is displeased with his own sins. Now, we won't find the word anger 
We won't find the word wrath in Romans chapter 7, but if you're familiar with that chapter, you know there that Paul is, in a sense, righteously indignant with himself because of his own sin. He asks questions, and he makes statements, I want to do good, the good that I will to do is not what I do. O wretched man that I am. I think this is a depiction of an anger that is that is kindled rightly and directed rightly at sin in your own heart and in your own life. John Gill also said, with the sins of others, and he, though I'm not quoting him directly here, he writes much about it's the sin in others and not the person. And I think we have biblical example of that. You can think of Simon the magician or the sorcerer in Acts chapter 8. What was Peter and the other apostles, disciples' response to him when he began to pervert the doctrines that they were living out in front of him? Paraphrasing what he said is he wanted the gifts that they had as well so that he could take part in their ministry and if he were to carry on in his former life to make a profit from it. What was Peter's response? There was a an incitation of righteous anger there. But what about in Galatians chapter 2? Paul, in his relationship with Peter, you might remember the context. Peter, who knew better. Peter, who understood this whole doctrinal issue between the Jews and the Gentiles and food laws and circumcision, and he was playing one part with the Gentiles of whom he is with, when the Jews came, he reverted, and he went back and began to keep these old commands as if they pertained to his new creaturely status before God. What was Paul's reaction? Paul called him out. He exposed it. And I think this is an example of a righteous indignation of sorts when he saw in Peter something that did not correspond to gospel truth. And he acted on it. And the, one of the other things Gil said, when you see vice and immorality of evil in every kind, I couldn't help but think of 1 Corinthians chapter 5. Paul writing to that church, and he says, it has actually been reported that a man has his father's wife. And you are, paraphrasing again, glorying in it rather than being repulsed by it. And then there's this interjection of in, in the writing where Paul says, what? I think that is a, an example of his righteous indignation at immorality and immorality tolerated. I think also in Acts chapter 17, you'll remember when Paul is on Mars Hill, when he is in Athens amongst the, the notable minds of his day and time. In Acts chapter 17, in verse 16, it says there that while Paul waited in Athens, his spirit was provoked within him when he saw that the city was given over to idols. Some might say, well, that's pity being provoked in Paul, and certainly it was, but there was also an incitation of righteous anger, and he began to clearly portray the gospel and call people to repentance and faith. The same with Paul again in Galatians chapter 5, in verse 12. You might remember here, 
false doctrine had invaded and was destroying the churches in Galatia. Paul gets wind of it. He writes a corrective epistle. And he goes so far in the 12th verse, speaking of those who were trying to reinstitute circumcision amongst the Gentile church as being a true and right way of worshiping God and being obedient to the commandments. Paul wrote in Galatians 5:12, I could wish that those who trouble you would even cut themselves off. False doctrine had incited Paul to righteous anger, and he wrote of it again. So those are just a few biblical examples, and that's the type of anger. Notice that none of that was what we would categorize as, quote, anger in our expression of it. This is, this is being incited as a Christian for the zeal and glory of God, for the zeal and the glory of the truth of the Word of God, by being provoked. And I think that word that is used there in Galatians 5.12 is probably one of the best words to govern everything that I've said and what is being said here in Ephesians 5 in be angry. There should be in the people of God a provoking in your spirit when the things of God are trampled upon, when they are cast aside, when they are blasphemed, when they are outrightly cursed, when the name of God is cursed, when the cause of Christ is cursed, there should be something in your spirit that rises to the surface that wants to defend the honor of the Christ that has saved you, that wants to defend the honor of the God that has been so gracious and merciful to you. Be angry, but don't sin. Here is the difficulty. And I read this in a couple of different places this week, so I don't know who is the who to give credit for to this statement. Anyone can become angry. But to be angry with the right person to the right degree at the right time for the right purpose in the right way, that is what is not easy. So Paul says here, the positive, be angry. When the cause of God and truth suffers because of the presence of sin, there should be something provoked in us. And really, if you want to stay directly, immediately in context, we can go to excuse me, Ephesians 5, just turn the page or look down the page. And you read verse 8. For you once, for you were once darkness, but now you are light in the Lord. Walk as children of light, for the fruit of the Spirit is in all goodness, righteousness, and truth, finding out what is acceptable to the Lord. Verse 11. Have no fellowship with the unfruitful works of darkness, rather, but rather expose them. That is a product, the exposing of error and sin and the unfruitful works of darkness, this exposing them is a fruit and a product of being provoked by the acts of perversion. But here's the difficulty. The difficulty is embracing this, but not unto sin. And so let's see if we can balance these things. I'm going to begin by using the words of 
of Matthew Henry. He says, though anger in itself is not sinful, yet, and again, in this context, yet there is the utmost danger of its becoming so if it is not carefully watched and speedily suppressed. You'll notice that this type of indignation, the heat of this type of indignation, is to go to bed when the heat of the sun goes to bed. It's not something that is to be carried over, not something that you are to to boil and, and, and allow to rise to the surface so that there is an outburst of sinful, unrighteous anger. Righteous anger is not that which is provoked by sin against you or sin against me. Remember, this type of anger and the incitement of it is for the zeal and the glory of God, the zeal and the glory of Christ, the zeal and the glory of His Word. Never can we claim to be righteously angered or obedient to this command when we are sinned against in our retaliation against someone for a supposed sin. Righteous anger is not that which is provoked by sins against self. And how often does that happen? Well, perhaps you have a biblical preference or a worship preference or a dress preference or an education preference or some other preference. And someone crosses that. Or they don't themselves embrace it. The incitement that you may have to anger against them for that is not a righteous and holy indignation. That's the type of anger and wrath that has to be put off and to be put away. We can take it a step further. We all want to cut the Scriptures straight and divide it rightly, but we have to understand we are limited in our capacity. We are at the complete disposal of the spirit to come along inside and help us so when our interpretations are misunderstood or not embraced by someone else if we are incited to anger against them that's not a righteous and holy indignation just because two brothers or two sisters can't see eye to eye on some point of interpretation so long as it's not a gospel salvific and eternal of eternal consequence. Or to the much more base level, when our pride is injured in any way, the response of that is not righteous indignation. When your pride is injured, when my pride is injured, that is the type of wrath and anger that verse 20, 31 says, put away with it. Do away with it. So how can we bring some more balance to this be angry and do not sin? Well, let's talk about the negative part of this. Do not sin. And I'm thankful John Gill went on to write a counterpart. We've read there is anger which is not sinful that he wrote. Now what about his there is anger which is sinful? Your anger in mine is sinful, he says, when it is without cause. When it exceeds due bounds, when, it's, when it does not stay in bounds. 
when it is not directed to a good end, when it produces ill effects, when it is too soon raised, or when it is continued too long. And when it is produced by a supposed sin or an actual sin against self. That is anger which is sinful. Again, the command, if we understand it rightly, is to be provoked. Again, the word angry out of Psalm 4 verse 4 in the Septuagint version, the Greek version of the Old Testament scriptures is to be agitated. To be provoked. That's the type of anger that is in mind. Not the sinful type of anger that is a response to some supposed sin against self. Another author has written three faults by which we offend God in being angry. Number one, when anger arises from slight or no cause at all or from private injury or offense. Second, when we go beyond proper bounds and hurry into intemperate excesses. When our anger, which ought to have been directed against sin in ourselves, is turned against our brethren. And again, those mirror almost exactly what we've already covered. Be provoked. In your likeness to God and in the likeness of Jesus Christ. Be provoked but not unto sin. When you see the cause and truth and the glory of God being drugged through the mud as it so often is in the day in which we live. How can a Christian living in this day and time not be provoked in his or her spirit when we see the perversion of gospel truth, the denial of the word of God, the blaspheming of the name of God, the way of God, the blaspheming of Christ. There is a provoking that should take place in us and within due bounds, we are to defend. We are to promote and we are to preach the gospel in the face of such provocation. And notice here in verse 26, this is, a, this is to be of short duration. Do not let the sun go down on your wrath. Perhaps the way that this is most often applied, and rightly so, is in your closest relationships, this is when anger is sinful. This is when anger must be dealt with and dealt with quickly. This is not the provocation that begins verse 26. This is the sinful anger that is to be put off. One author has said, Before hatred has found a way into the heart, anger must be thoroughly dislodged. And in the Sermon on the Mount, you remember that Jesus speaks about this, the beginnings of sinful anger and the ending of sinful anger. In graphic imagery, Jesus says, in, in illustration, he says, the end of sinful anger is murder. 
And just think how often have you read the news reports of something that instigated so quickly between friends, between husband and wife that ended in such a horrible and tragic way because anger was not a holy indignation, but it was the sinful anger of self. And it spiraled quickly out of control and ended in disaster. Verse 27 is the motive. Be angry. If we, if, let's apply it to both, the positive and the negative. Be angry, and again, I think the word provoked here is probably the better word, at least with our familiarity with the word. Be provoked. Give no place to the devil. When you find that the devil is gaining ground in your life because of sin, be provoked. When you find that the devil is gaining ground in your family life because of sin, be provoked. When you find that the devil is gaining ground not just in your life, in your family's life, but in the circle of your life as it expands and expands and expands into the culture in which you live, when you see that the devil is gaining ground, gaining ground, be provoked to the point that you are willing to do what Ephesians 5, 8 says, expose the error in truth and in love for the honor and the sake and the glory of God because of zeal for Christ and His way not to promote yourself. And then negatively, if we were to apply the negative part of this, do not sin in your anger or you give place to the devil. The word place here is to really give him a standing or an opportunity. An opportunity to do what? Well, we read this morning to open the service out of John 10, which says that he came to steal, kill, and destroy. You give the devil an opportunity or a place that is always his motivation. And just to be sure, if you're studying this verse on your own, some would say this does not refer to Satan himself, but it's just some false accuser or slanderer. Well, I understand that interpretation, but I also understand that the word used that is translated devil here in the New Testament is always a reference to the slanderer, the false accuser of the brethren, the lion who prowls, who tries to destroy. And if you give him a place, he will. If through unconcern and by not being provoked for the zeal and the glory of God, you give him a place, he will go on in that particular context, whatever it is, until every ounce of godliness is driven out of it and has been totally perverted and turned upside down. That would be sin. That would be how we sin against this positive command of being angry or provoked, just to not care. Just to not care. To see Satan and the effects of sin have producing such carnage in people's lives or in the culture at large and just not care. Then we have transgressed this command to be angry or provoked for the zeal and the glory of God. To be complacent. Just to say what's going to happen is going to happen. 
Is that the way that someone that has been created according to God and true righteousness and holiness, is that an expectation of someone that fits that description? No, there is to be great concern. There is to be even great provocation. But on the other hand, if we let that provoking turn into sinful anger, then again, you see the razor's edge upon which this verse calls us to walk. It is absolutely an extremely thin and fine line that the scriptures call us to walk here when this provocation turns into a sinful anger or when we use this as justification for our actions against someone for what they have said about us done to us or whatever then we have given place to the devil in other words we have opened the door for him to come into that situation and wreak full havoc which is exactly the desire. Why else would the scriptures describe him with the terms that it does? A false accuser. The one who stands in opposition at every turn and in every way to the cause of God and the truth of Jesus Christ. We're told in another place in the scriptures, resist him. Steadfast in the faith. And to realize here in these verses, when either one of these two things is true, when we are complacent in the cause of God, we have given the devil a foothold. When there is nothing standing in the way, he'll gain ground. But yet, if we fall into the other side of this and fall off of the, the thin right way and we fall into sinful expression of anger, well, there again, he has the upper hand. You see how greatly we are at the disposal of Christ in us. How greatly we are in need of help. And how greatly God in Christ has met this need by sending His own Spirit to dwell in us. John Trapp is the last name I'll mention. Perhaps he sums this up best. He that will be angry and not sin... Let him be angry at nothing but sin. And perhaps some may be really close to the truth in the context here. Because we're always prone to see sin in someone else before we see it in ourselves. We're always more prone to see the speck in a brother's eye than to see the plank or the log that is impairing our vision in our own eye. Perhaps there is another application of this text. Be angry 
at the sin in yourself. Be provoked by it. Be agitated. Again, the word, Psalm 4.4, go look it up. Be angry, that word is to tremble physically, bodily. Be that provoked at sin in yourself. Why? Because as a professing Christian, you are doing harm to the cause of God in your life. Because it is affecting not only you in your personal relationship with Christ and the glory that you will bring to Him, but it's a reflection. It's a reflection not just of your life, but of your family, of your people, your circle, even your church body, your family. So when sin is present in your own life, be provoked. And you say, well, yes, I realize that. I'm provoked by the sin in my life. What do I do with this sin that is so agitating me? Well, the Scriptures would tell you over and over and over again, as a believer, to take that sin to the feet of Christ, repent of it, and leave it there. Turn from it. Oftentimes we get this idea in our mind that repentance is for an unbeliever. You repent of your sins, you come to faith in Christ, and then you're done with repentance for the rest of your life. A true believer who is struggling with remaining sin understands that every single day of my life there is going to be something for me sincerely to come before a holy God and repent of in my life. The, the, the power of sin, yes, thank God, has been broken, but it's still there. We can willfully choose to submit ourselves to it, and far too often and sadly we do. That old phrase won't work. It won't fly. The old phrase, the devil made me do it. No, he didn't. You chose to do it. You chose. Now bear the consequence. Or come to Christ. Come to, come to God in Christ and repent of that sin. And I'm speaking there to, believe, to believers. What about an unbeliever? Perhaps you're looking at these verses and you're, you're wondering how in the world can you apply these things? Well, you can't. You can't. The first thing that you need to do is settle accounts with God and realize that the only way your account of sin is ever going to be reduced to zero is through your relationship to Jesus Christ. You have to come to faith in Christ. Coming to faith in Christ, if you want an illustration for it, your sins are piled high. And a holy God, notice uh, this same, same uh, context, Galatia, uh, keep saying Galatians, Ephesians 5. Because of these things, the wrath of God comes upon the sons of disobedience. If you are outside of Christ, you are a son or daughter of disobedience, and your sins are stacked high against a holy and righteous God. And if something doesn't happen with this category of sin in your life, when you die, you will make payment of that sin for yourself, by yourself, by being an eternal object of the wrath of a holy God. That fire will burn against you throughout all eternity. There is no end to it. 
Jesus graphically describes it as a place where the worm never dies. But thank God, the good news of the Gospel is that there is something God Himself, who is just, has made a way for this pile of sin that depicts your life to be dealt with so that it is removed from you. You are no longer liable to bear the consequence of it. And what He has done for you is He has sent Christ, born of a virgin, into the world, who was perfectly sinless and obedient to the law, obedient to His Father, suffered, we saw last week, given opportunity to defend Himself, He did not. Why? Because this pile of sin that is yours and mine, He took it to Himself and He owned it as His own. And He made payment for your sin. He redeemed you. Now, the invitation, the gospel call is to come to Christ. What sense does it make if we're just speaking on on literal, plain, base level sense? What sense does it make to try to rectify and pay for this pile of sin that is you and me? When the scripture says, come without money, won't cost you a thing, without price. Again, free. Yes, I understand the sovereignty of God and salvation. I understand if he doesn't issue the effectual call, no one will come. I understand that Jesus says no one is able. That means no one in their natural state is able or willing to come. But I also understand the grace of God. I also understand the love of God that woos and draws people into himself. And thankfully, speaking for myself and many of you, that was so strong that there was a point in my life where I couldn't do anything but come to Christ. I trust that's where you are this morning. That Christ is drawing you to himself. And you you say, what do I do? You run in. The door is open. I could put words in your mouth, but I don't want to. (laughs) You, You run into Christ. You confess your sin. You repent of it. And you embrace him as your savior. And that sin debt that was heaped up against you is immediately dissipated. And what is replaced there in this place of filthy rags is the glorious, righteous garments of Jesus Christ, all his obedience. Everything that he is, is given you by faith. And you're united to Him. You don't become Christ. You become Christ's. He owns you. You were bought with a price. Therefore, glorify your body. Glorify Him in your body. Let's pray. Father, we thank You for these verses this morning. And, oh God, I pray You would help us to understand them. This is not license for unrighteous anger. Unrighteous anger is to be put away. It is to be confessed and repented of. It is a perversion to the gospel. It does not befit those that have been created according to your image. 
but I pray you would teach us more of what being provoked righteously, what it means. That when we see your way, your word, in your Christ, our Savior, when we see him being blasphemed, that it would provoke in us to stand up and defend. When we see sin in our own life, that is marring the work of God, that is giving place to the devil, that is giving him a foothold in life, that we would be so provoked by it that we would come through tears if necessary, repenting of those sins, seeking, Lord, that you would grant it unto us. Lord, would you grant these things, salvation, repentance. We're at your total disposal, Lord. Oh, please do it. We ask you, Lord, to build up and edify believers and to truly save the lost. We ask you these things because we know it honors you and you're well pleased in the performing of them. We ask it in Christ's name. Amen. Don't often do this enough as I should.